Welcome to And Justice for All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University, exploring the relationship between education and justice and the transformative power of inclusive education. Hosted by Roosevelt University President Ali Malekzadeh. Illinois school funding was never created equal, but the system remains broken along racial lines today. Last year, African-American students at underfunded schools faced an average funding gap of $1,400 or more each year than white students at similar schools. Guest host Tom Fillion, Dean of the College of Education, sits down with Ralph Martiri to talk about what we can do to dismantle structural racism from kindergarten to college. Ralph is the Arthur Robloff Professor of Public Policy at Roosevelt University. He also serves as the Executive Director of the Center of Tax and Budget Accountability, a bipartisan think tank. This episode is the second in a three-part series on the CTBA's work to address racial and economic disparities. I learned much from the rich conversation, and I am sure you will too. Ralph, it's, it's great to be talking with you today. It's always an honor talking with you, Tom. Yeah, yeah. I've been hearing about your work for years through my friends at Advance Illinois. So this is a great opportunity to catch up and uh, and uh, learn more about evidence-based funding and other matters in the state. Excellent. Well, you know, and I, I think that's funny to, to hear coming from you since you've forgotten more about education and education finance than 99.9% of the world ever knows. So I'll take that as a compliment. We'll move on from there. Yeah, yeah. And I actually, I think this is going to be much appreciated because in my world as dean of a college of education, people are always talking about practices that should be in schools and that we're supporting to be in schools. But very few of us really connect that over to the financing that can make those practices more possible like you're doing. So I think it's really important that we're getting the two of us together. Yeah. And, you know, and that's sort of the core of what my nonprofit that I, I work at does. Right. We tie the fiscal side of the ledger to the substantive side of the ledger. And if you have inadequate resources on the front end, you will get inadequate outcomes on the back end. That's pretty much guaranteed. So we try to align those two concepts. Yeah. Well, let's let's start there and talk a little bit more about some of the, the work that your organization has been doing. The Evidence-Based Funding for Student Success Act was signed into law in 2017, and this was a huge accomplishment for your organization. Could you start by explaining why we needed to change how Illinois provided funding to its schools? Well, because Illinois was the poster child for bad practices. We were the before picture. We literally had one of the most inequitable and inadequate educational funding systems in all of America. And and for that reason, we very much needed to change what we were doing. And Tom, as you well know, 
our old practice started with a foundation level, a, a guaranteed dollar amount per kid for every kid in the state of Illinois, whether that kid lived in Peoria or East St. Louis or Chicago. And it had some add-ons and adjustment to it. And our foundation amount per kid was actually not based on one cost of educating children. It was never, in fact, tied to education in any way. It was pretty much a dollar amount that the General Assembly and governor put together based on what the state could afford. And given that we have consistently run a deficit and a significant deficit in our general fund, we couldn't afford a lot. And so that really created a system that disadvantaged populations all over Illinois. Now, switch to the evidence-based funding formula. As you know, this was designed by a couple of university uh, professors, one located at University of Wisconsin, one at USC. And they looked at those practices, which over time had a statistically meaningful correlation to enhancing student achievement. And they said, all right, if these are the practices that work, we call them the elements, the 27 elements. What's it cost to fund them given your state's economy? And we even have a regional cost factor. But it's not just funding them statewide. I think what's really brilliant about the evidence-based funding formula is it creates a unique amount of resources a school district needs predicated on the very specific student population that school district serves. So it automatically adjusts the amount of financing a school district receives based on its concentration of low-income students and special needs students and English learners. And it builds up additional resources. So school two districts could be right next to each other, have identical student population from an enrollment standpoint, but if they have very different demographics, one is going to get significantly more resources than the other, and it should to implement these evidence-based practices. So that, that, that was a fundamental shift. And I think one of the things that's really excellent about the evidence-based funding formula is it's not just adequate in amount in that it identifies the amount of resources each district needs. It's automatically, if you fully fund it, equitable in distribution, right? Because it is taking into account a number of these factors that we know create obstacles to student learning, like coming from a low-income background, being an English learner, et cetera. Right, right. I know that recently, as an advisor to the Black Caucus, your organization has worked to pass an amendment to the EBF that addresses structural racism. Could you talk a little bit about what that term structural racism means and how structural racism impacts Black K through 12 students in Illinois? Yeah, you know, absolutely I can. And, and, and thanks for bringing that up. So as part of the evidence-based funding formula, which I, I got to co-draft with a gentleman you know very well, Mike Jacoby, who, by the way, not only says hello to you, uh, thinks you're one of the most brilliant education minds in the state. He, those are oh his my words. gosh. Holy cow, my head just exploded. Uh, but, you know, Mike's a great guy and, yeah. and, and and has been around education for a long time. And I'm guessing you two have a past. <laughs> yeah. I didn't ask, but I'm guessing. Uh, but anyway, Mike and I worked on this uh, together. And uh, one of the things we put into the legislation was a provision that the General Assembly, through the State Board of Education and Governor, appoint what's called the Professional Review Panel. And the Professional Review Panel are individuals with some expertise in education policy that are going to look at the implementation of the EBF over time, the evidence-based funding formula, to make sure it's working the way it should or to come up with adjustments. Well, I am actually Governor Rauner 
got me appointed to the evidence-based funding formula, which is an interesting thing, uh, to the professional review panel. And one of the first questions I asked as a member of the panel was, gee, is B, you get access to data I can't get access to. So can you do a regression analysis to see if there's a statistically meaningful correlation between student performance by race that's completely independent of income, right? I, I couldn't get mm-hmm. the data to do such an analysis, but they can. And sure enough, it came back, and there is such a statistically meaningful correlation. And it's negative if you're of a minority race, Black or Latinx. And so that right there showed us that there is, in fact, a problem with structural racism in the state of Illinois and its K-12 system, because it's completely independent of income. And a lot of people like to conflate those two considerations, but we were able to separate them out. So then once you've identified it, and this is a challenge for an educational system, how do you deal with it? Because most of the things an educational system deals with are are focused with overcoming challenges the kid faces based on the kid's environment rather than issues in the educational system itself. Low-income kid. Well, we know that generally speaking, and there's always exceptions, but generally speaking, a low-income student doesn't have education reinforced to the same level as a non-low-income kid, doesn't have access to the same resources in the home, et cetera. And so the educational system could make up for that opportunity gap by putting in supports. That's kid-focused. Kid has special needs. You do an individualized education program. You identify those special needs, and you come up with a program. Kid-focused. If a kid's an English learner, we know what the problem is. They're learning English while they are learning in English. So look, there is nothing inherently about being African-American that means a kid can't learn. So if you're seeing these statistically meaningful and negative outcomes over time, what, what that's telling you is your system is singling out African-American students for disadvantage. Yeah. So now you've got to look inwardly and do sort of a system audit to determine where that problem is existing and identify the barriers that you've created and eliminate those barriers with evidence-based practices. And we did get the EBF amended this year to require my professional review panel to come up with some specific recommendations for how to counter this structural racism that's clearly been identified in the state of Illinois' K-12 funding system. And I could even put some numbers on it. So one great thing about the evidence-based funding formula is because it identifies a unique amount of resources every school district needs called their adequacy target, you could then identify what gaps exist in funding on a per-pupil basis. And you could break those gaps down by race. And so here's some very interesting data from the state of Illinois. Overall, the the gap in funding per pupil statewide was about you know, 4060 bucks per kid. However, for the average white student attending an underfunded school, the gap was less. It was $3,400 per kid. For the average mm-hmm. black kid, the gap was greater, $4,700 per yeah. kid, and a similar amount for Latinx. So right there, you see the old funding system was structurally racist in how it allocated resources, even to underfunded schools. And it's not like the white kids attending underfunded schools were getting a great deal. It's just that in, in a state where a lot of schools, over 80% of the school districts were underfunded, 
black and brown students were singled out for particularly poorly funded educations. So is there any wonder then there's a gap in achievement when for decades you've isolated out these minority populations for specific disadvantage in the resource side? And there's, of course, not. of course, it's not a surprise. Yeah. So we're going to look at practices that can really counter structural racism and specifically structural racism against African-American students first. And we've actually, my organization has been asked by the Latina caucus to look at structural racism against Latinos. And in the next year or two, see if we can't find some evidence-based practices to deal with those. And so we just began that research. I have no answers yet. Uh-huh. Uh, but but on, on the African-American front, you know, we do know there are some practices that work and there's a number of them. Uh, for yeah. example, professional development on implicit bias, very effective, especially if it's evidence-based, repeated and results in changes in pedagogy that get into the classroom, right? That's one of the things that really works. Uh, doing a system audit. Uh, to see where you're creating barriers. For example, I'm on the board of a high school, and we saw that we had OPRF, a really good high school, Oak Park River Forest High School. Right. But we saw that we had a a significant differential by race in students attending AP and honors courses. And then what we found was over the years that there was some implicit bias in getting kids into these classes, number one. And then number two, uh, when minority students would get in, they would frequently find they're their only kid in a certain course. And they found that the only minority kids found that very uncomfortable and would more likely than not, not continue on uh, on the AP track. So identifying those kinds of internal barriers is a really important thing you could do to counter structural racism. And then, of course, there's culturally responsive pedagogy, which is another very important step you could take that's evidence-based. And and that's all about really engaging uh, minority students more in their coursework, using their own self-identities and their histories and their backgrounds. There's a lot of different ways you can do that. It's like, for example, you can do a lit review, and it, there's nothing wrong with the classics like Salinger or Dickens, et cetera, in your literature courses, but why not include African-American authors and Latinx authors and gay authors and authors from Egypt? In other words, broaden the cultural reach of the authors in the literature that you utilize. Th- those kinds of things really make a difference because students start seeing yeah. themselves in their coursework, once again, engages them more, promotes more critical thinking. And that's really what we, we want to do. So there's there's a lot of different things that can be done that are evidence-based that have been shown to close achievement gaps. The universal design for learning, as you know, incorporates a lot of these concepts as a pedagogical approach. And that's one of the things that we think should be looked at. Project-based learning is another, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. I'm really happy to hear you talk about all the, all those practices, since almost every single one of them is something we're putting more and more attention on and focus on in our programs as we develop teachers here at Roosevelt. Well, Tom, I don't think Roosevelt gets enough credit for the high quality faculty we have. I mean, the education department that you lead, first off, you're a phenomenal expert. If people don't know your background, they should look into you. I mean, we are lucky to have you as dean of the education school. We really are, given your knowledge set and skill sets. But you have a wonderful faculty, and you've been cutting edge in trying to adapt to the changes that are really happening on the field in education. As someone that does 
public policy for a living in addition to teaching, I really appreciate how forward-looking your department has been. So kudos to you and what you've done there. Thank you. Thank you. Though I'll, I'll try to deflect some of that. A lot of that recognition really belongs to my faculty and also really the university. Because honestly, as a dean, I'm sure you feel this way too. What I try to do is actually have all of our actions today live up to the legacy from yesterday, you know? And so we really need to be at the cutting edge and we really need to be looking at how to address the needs of the students that you're focused on through your initiatives with the evidence-based funding. But I just want to back up for a second. Just want to make sure I understand exactly what you've done. So I boiled this down to, I think, three talking points. One would be that in the past, we set up a system for funding schools that we thought was fair to all because it gave everybody sort of the same amount of money. And then kind of the research you've, you've done has suggested actually we're not even sure, we've only been fair to some people. We may not have been fair to anyone actually, if you look really closely at the needs of, of schools. Is that right? That's exactly That's a, right. Okay, awesome. And then, so, and what you've done recently then through the EBF was to say, okay, we need to look at, we need to give more funding to schools who have low-income students, students who speak a second language. And I know there's one other category too that was addressed yeah, originally. special needs. Special needs, right. And now with this most recent amendment, you're expanding that out one step further to say, hey, look, districts that serve predominantly African-American populations or have above, is it 15%? 15%. That's where we're looking. That will capture about 94% of the African-American kids in the state. We, we need to get funding to them because if we don't, we're just perpetuating essentially systematic and inequality, systematic racism within the system, right? Exactly right, Tom. Exactly okay. right. And so that gets us to like the third piece of all this, which is, okay, the money's going to you. You've got to use it for professional development that's going to address the systematic racism that we know is embedded in the culture of schools in our society, right? Right, so very different from the other funding elements. And so here's one of the challenges in Illinois. If you run the full evidence-based funding formula, we're short of funding what schools need predicated on what the evidence suggests works overall by about $7 billion today. Now, we did put about $976 million more in over the prior three years. That's good news. Bad news is we flat funded it the last two years, so we're losing all those gains. But, you yeah. know, we did put some more money in, but we haven't gotten to or anywhere near really to full funding. So school districts have a lot of latitude to take this money and apply it to whichever of the 27 elements, the evidence-based elements they feel make the biggest difference in their community. So it might be they need tier two interventionists, for, in, for example, and that's a really good thing that has a very high effect size. That really is a great way to move student achievement forward. So that's a legitimate use. So all your money that you get through the EBF, you do have local control to apply it to these evidence-based practices, except when you start getting money for this racial inequity tranche. Then we're saying, look, the system has singled out these black kids for disadvantage for generations. Can't let it keep doing that. So any money that you get through this tranche, you have to actually use for some of these anti-racism evidence-based practices, and you have to report back to ISBE. 
how you used it. So we really want to stay yeah. on top of that because we really want to, I really want to take racism out of the system altogether. Yeah, yeah. Could you say a little bit more about what you were telling me before we got this podcast started about some of the recent questions that have been raised about those evidence-based practices? I know this is coming up in my field because the state of Illinois just passed some new culturally responsive teaching and learning standards for colleges of education. I know there have been a lot of questions from some of the downstate legislators about those standards and how they're going to be used. What, do you, what are you hearing? What are you seeing within the state legislature as people hear about these evidence-based practices and then maybe start to ask some questions about it? Yeah, well, we have some pretty tough, and Tom, you know this because you've been a student of Illinois politics for a while, and if you do education, you do politics, because the one doesn't happen without the other. And what we know about Illinois is our geographic politics are easily as rough, if not rougher, than our party politics, Democrat versus Republican. I mean, there's you, you look at what we call some downstate Democrats, and you will find them virtually identical to what most people would view ideologically as pretty conservative Republicans. And so when you have this kind of geographic division, and then you look at the dispersal of our student population with the concentration of minority students, there's a couple of exceptions downstate, like East St. Louis and Peoria. But for the most part, downstate is predominantly white, and, and you have to get up to the Cook County area and surrounding collar counties to get the vast majority of the minority students in our state. That creates some racial tension. And a lot of folks that don't really understand how these educational practices work, view them as zero sum games. So if this is if this is money that's going to help your minority populations, it's going to take away from your white populations. That's not how it works. If you're actually building an excellent education system for all kids. So let me give an example that's really reinforced by the research very strongly. It certainly makes a difference. If you could diversify your faculty, and and so students get to see African American students get to see teachers that look like them, it, it makes a big difference. But not mm-hmm. just for the black kids. As it turns out, a diverse faculty leads to higher learning outcomes, test scores, graduate the whole thing for white kids too. Diversity actually helps create a better educational system because it brings different ways of looking at problems and different cultural backgrounds and different communities into the classroom for discussion. And that stimulates lateral thought and critical thinking. And everybody does better. Uh, Mm -hmm. This is really not a zero sum. And so uh, I don't know, uh, you're very familiar. I'm, I'm probably, I'm convinced with Eric Konyashek, who is one of the more conservative writers. He's at Stanford University's Hoover Institute. And and Eric Konyashek, who's, you know, pretty much written a bunch that money doesn't matter in education. It's all about vouchers and choice and it's all about getting rid of the bad teachers. And he's written a lot of that stuff. So he's a pretty conservative commentator. We actually had him uh, peer review our work on the evidence-based funding formula and the reports that we did on it, including a report called the return on investment. So if you invest in these evidence-based practices and you generate these better academic outcomes, here's the value to your economy. And his peer review was like, yeah, in fact, you've got the math right and these things do work. And, and they do end up as a benefit for all. And they do end up moving forward your, your educational outcomes for all. So we really have to, I think, from a political standpoint, 
always couple our discussion of more equitable practices with the fact that it's building a more excellent overall education system for everyone and, and try to really defeat this, this thought process that it's, it's all about if you gain, I lose zero sum. It's really not like that at all. Yeah. We're building a better educational yeah. system where all kids can thrive. You're listening to And Justice for All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, one of the most satisfying experiences I've had over the last three to five years is actually working with a lot of downstate rural superintendents to kind of, in a very united way, work to try to solve the teacher shortage. Because the issues that we face in the Chicago metropolitan area are also faced acutely in rural and southern Illinois. And when you have everybody working together, then I think some of this inequity gets addressed. Just curious, because of that work, do you see, you know, I'm wondering, I think some people would perceive rural communities as another victim of the way the system works and does not fund things equitably across across the state. Have you looked into that question? You know, um Yeah, we've looked at we've looked at the geographic gaps as well. Yeah. You know, the biggest gap, and this is going to surprise people, the biggest per student funding gap is in CPS. Over five thousand dollars per kid. And the reason for that is it's seventy four percent low income and it's ninety percent minority. So there's there's a lot that needs to be addressed that, that requires an adequate investment of resources. But there are very significant gaps downstate. And even if the dollar amount is less than, than CPS, you have to put it in context of the regional economy, right? The costs are significantly less. And the evidence-based funding formula is excellent for downstate Illinois. It really does pump a lot of money into rural communities that that don't have a property tax base that they could even rely on. If you look at the way property taxes are valued in Illinois, one of the interesting things is agricultural property is valued at a a pretty significant market discount. And so the the EAVs, the equalized assessed value, the, the actual tax base that you have to go after in downstate communities is is minimalized by that. And that's a real challenge in a state like Illinois, where over 67% of the cost of public education is paid for by local property taxes, and only 24% is paid for by state revenue. Uh, we are the outlier in both cases, by the way. Uh, we are the weighing 50th among states in the portion of K-12 funding paid for by state taxes, and number one in reliance on property taxes. And so really getting Getting off the over addiction to property taxes is really good, not just from an equity standpoint when you think about it, low income, non-low income and white black, but also from an upstate downstate mentality. So this amendment is really strengthening the entire state. It's not taking away from one part of the state to help another. No. And in fact, you know, it's it, there's a minimum funding target amount set in the bill every year. And so if I should say when this race-based element is added, we are going to bump up the minimum target amount to cover the full amount of the race-based element so that the new funding for the race-based element would not take away from any of the other elements. And that's by design. We really want to make this clear 
this is about creating an excellent education system, no matter where you are in Illinois, no matter what color your skin is, no matter, no matter. Yeah. Well, kudos for you for taking on this work. It's really hugely important. Thank you. I want to shift gears just a little bit. I know you're also working with the Black Caucus on a proposal for a grant program that would help Black and Latinx students afford higher education. Could you talk a little bit about that proposal and why it is needed and how it would benefit, you know, uh, students entering higher education? Well, yeah. So what we know and, and, and the data here are just compelling. What we know is you really have to learn to earn. And your educational attainment matters in the modern economy. So back in 1980, a college grad earned about 30% more than a high school grad. Well, today, they earn 45% more. It's a pretty significant jump. You know, and someone with an advanced degree earned 41% more than a high school grad back in 1980. And today, it's almost 60% more. So Mm -hmm. you really need a K-12 system that builds up the numeracy literacy skills in all of its students so that they could go on and credential themselves at the next level. It's it's crucial. And and it's funny, I've heard people push back and say, well, but getting a college degree isn't a guarantee of getting a good paying job. Well, that's true. But if you don't get a college degree, I can pretty much guarantee you won't get a good paying job. So get that college degree. It's it's the ticket in the door. Uh, you know, it's it, you got to really look at it from a practical standpoint. And, and now that we know Illinois is significantly underfunded schools for a long period of time, we also know that that underfunding has created gaps in skill sets so that when kids go on to that next level and try to credential themselves, a lot of times, all right, and I'm going to use the wrong word. I'm going to I'm going to say this is what I they were asked to take remedial courses. They've changed that name. What is the new name? Do, do you know at the at college level? Uh, but whatever, it's it's the equivalent of a remedial course. To and you get no credit. You got to take it before you can get into the credit taking courses. And so what was happening? And disproportionately, this harmed black and brown students, by the way. What was happening was a lot of students that were coming from a low-income background were burning off all their financial aid and support, taking these courses that don't count for credit, but they needed to take to get into credit-bearing courses. They burned through their financial aid, they incur loans, and now they, they drop out, and they don't graduate, and they have loans. And it's because of this requirement to take these remedial courses. Well, they're mm-hmm. taking those remedial courses yeah. because their A-12 system didn't arm them with the skill sets they needed. So what we thought would be a, a good thing to do is say, look, state of Illinois, we now know from the evidence-based funding fun- formula that a significant number of school districts in Illinois for generations have not had the resources they need to educate their kids. We've divided the school districts into tiers, tier one being those school districts furthest away from having an adequate amount of resources. Tier four actually has over 100% of the resources they need. But tier one and tier two are below adequate. So we said, why not create a grant program to cover the full course cost of any remedial courses any student has to take if that student attended a tier one or tier school to school district? What you're doing is making up for your failure to invest in their education on the front end by investing in their education at the higher education level. And yeah. it's it's a true equity piece. 
And we've we've done some preliminary costs. We think based on you know college attendance and all that other stuff, it, it'd be somewhere between nine and twenty million a year to fund this, which isn't an outrageous amount of money, mm-hmm. uh, but would certainly help allow a number of students attend college or community college, get that two-year degree, get that four-year degree, and now have the credential they need to be viable in the modern economy. So we think it's the right thing to do, and we are working collaboratively with the Black Caucus on coming up with such a program. Yeah, yeah. I love it. I can tell you from a college of education perspective, it's it's hugely needed. If, if there's one set of courses that poses an obstacle to people becoming a teacher. It's really the, the requirements in math and science for our early childhood and elementary school teachers. And, and I think if we had more support for those students to be able to you know, take the steps needed to increase their sure. content knowledge in those areas, we'd be in a lot better position. Yeah. Yeah, so we think the state should invent, look, uh, the main reason these students are required to take those those remedial courses are because their K-12 education was not adequately invested in. And so let's make up for that investment. Let's give these kids the opportunity to let's let them keep their other financial aid and apply it to credit bearing courses so they can yeah. actually graduate. Yeah, people, I, I've been on calls recently where people are just always trying to find out, you know, so what prevents people, you know, students from staying in college? and then continuing on to get jobs. And the finances are always the number one issue that every, everybody mentions. So more support there would be, would be huge. That would be great. How is, how's this kind of work connected to what I know is like another project you're working on, which is in to, to increase funding for housing in uh, communities of, of need and color? Well, you know, like I like I said, Tom, thanks for bringing that up. This is a really fun project, and it's it's starting to get some headway. So hopefully we'll get something, a pilot program done within the next 18 months. One of the real challenges from a public policy standpoint is, is creating investment in communities of systemic long-term poverty. And when you get into communities of systemic long-term poverty, you see one of the major contributors to holding the community back is vacant property. Vacant property becomes, it's not just an eyesore, they become crime centers, uh, drug distribution centers, gang centers, uh, prostitution centers. In, in any event, nothing good happens. And they drag down the value of all the other properties. And here's the, the vicious cycle that creates. So if a private developer were to come in and rehab or blow down and rebuild a vacant property, after you comply with things like prevailing wage laws, et cetera, your cost of rehab, redevelopment, whatever, is significantly above the market value in the community. So now you can't sell the property, lease the property, turn it into any sort of market use. So we said, hey, we know HUD, the, the Federal Housing and Urban Development, agency and the state of Illinois have both said in their press releases, et cetera, that they're looking for ways to limit taxpayer investment in housing and in development to one-time investments rather than continuing ongoing investments. If you think about 
traditional HUD financing metric, for instance, they're they're either giving vouchers, which go on and on and on and on, or they're actually funding construction and leasing of public housing units, which is a consistent mm-hmm. ongoing cost. So we said, we got a great idea for you. Why don't you cover the Delta here? So get a private developer in to acquire the property and say, whatever your final cost of development is, we will cover the difference between that and market value in that community, plus 10%. We guarantee you a 10% profit. So now, you, you, it may cost you $100 to redevelop it. It has a market value of 75. You don't care because you've got that $25 delta plus 10% over it. So right. now, when you turn that property into the market, you could turn it at regular market costs. And suddenly, you're not only getting private investment into this area, you're getting rid of a crime center, and you're creating a private market that could then grow and bump up values, et cetera. And this is really exciting because it's a one-time use of uh, federal, uh, federal or state tax dollars, and the investment is very limited. But- the uses can include everything from housing to mixed use. You probably want some mixed use commercial, et cetera, thrown in there. So that's the concept. And we are, are currently working with the Illinois Housing Development Authority, IDA, on uh, designing a potential pilot and then and marketing this to the legislature. And I have to thank State Representative Will Davis, who's been a huge champion of this idea yeah. and helped us get it going. He's a member of the Black Caucus and just a great all-around guy. Yeah, it sounds awesome. I mean, people need you you need really good housing to be able to make a difference in a community. A teacher can't be a teacher in the public schools unless there's good housing nearby to be able to to do that work. So, kudos to you again. Ralph, you're 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 hugely passionate about about this work. How did you get interested in in not only I mean so many people get interested in finance, right? That part, I understand. I see that all over our society. How did you get interested in, in kind of using your financial knowledge to address these systematic issues? Well, it it's kind of goes back to that earlier comment. I mean, you know, if you have inadequate resources on the front end, you get inadequate outcomes on the back end. So I've always cared about public policy. You know, back, if you remember Don Clark Netch, I was her deputy user director when she ran for governor uh, and and a full-time lawyer at a law firm that time, a partner at a law firm. So, I mean, I've always had my hand in policy. But Don and I would talk into all hours of the morning about the relationship between fiscal policy and the, the capacity of the public sector to actually generate outcomes. And if it doesn't have adequate capacity, here's what happens in a political system. Frequently, the actual substantive area, let's education, blame falls on teachers. Yeah. We, we have, we've somehow suddenly got a bunch of bad teachers. No, we, we haven't given teachers the resources they need to be successful. And, and, and so if you don't do that capacity analysis and figure out, like the evidence-based funding formula does, right, here's what this district needs to implement these evidence-based practices to educate those children it specifically serves, without getting that right, then you are going to have bad outcomes. And if you have bad outcomes for a long period of time, the public starts losing trust in the public sector. And it's very easy Mm -hmm. for the anti 
government types, the Carl Roves, the Grover Norquists of the world, to, to tell taxpayers, hey, why do you want to throw more money into this system that's clearly broken? It's not that system's broken. It's underfinanced. And so let's have an understanding of how finance in, in impacts outcomes. Let's have a discussion of what the capacity needs to be to implement best practices to satisfy demographically driven demand for these services. Let's have that discussion. And that's a different discussion and leads you to a very different series of policies. Yeah, yeah. What are you thinking about the future for Illinois? I, I mean, obviously you're doing good work here, but also I know COVID has kind of changed almost everything is what everyone says. What's your outlook on, on the next, say, two to three years in terms of Illinois being able to move forward on these proposals that, that you're making? Well, you know, Illinois' fiscal challenges are really aren't going to be so much COVID-based now that we have a decent federal relief package coming down the pipe. It, it's their long-term structural problems, Tom, mm -hmm. and, and they've had these for generations. And so basically our tax policy doesn't work in a modern economy. So every single year, tax revenue growth is slightly less than what's needed to maintain the prior year's level of services, just adjusting for inflation and changes in population. So that's a problem when every year your cost grows like this and your revenue grows like that. And we've had this problem going on in Illinois generations. It was first identified actually by the University of Illinois way back in the early 1970s. And so until we reform our tax policy holistically, actually work in the modern economy, Illinois' fiscal problems aren't going to go away. In fact, the structural deficit that we have is the primary reason, number one, Illinois over relies on property taxes to fund schools. For generations, the state said, hey, we really can't afford it. We're going to set our, our foundation level artificially low, and we're going to kick this cost of educating kids down to property taxes. Okay, except property tax is a highly inequitable way to fund education because you've tied the quality of education a kid's going to get to the local wealth in the community in which the kid lives. Bad. Don't do that. But we did that. Now, the second thing that it did, and everyone in Illinois is aware of the, the pension underfunding that we have, it's now north of $140 billion. Well, it's north of $140 billion because of this bad tax policy. So for generations, the state said, hey, you know what? Let's not bother actually making the actuarially required contribution to our five pension system. We'll just write the pension system to an IOU. That bears interest, by the way, that compounds annually. <clears throat> but we're just going to put that problem off for another day, take the money that should have gone to pensions, <clears throat> and use it to fund current services. That's borrowing to spend. And that's not sustainable. So now we have this huge debt that we have to pay back, all because we intentionally underfunded our pensions to hide the structural deficit. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for all all this time and effort and energy you're putting in, into this. I, I'm optimistic. Actually, just hearing the passion in your voice makes me feel like we, we can get a hold on, on on some of these issues in the next couple of years. It's been a real pleasure talking with you today. It's always enjoyable talking with you, Tom. I'm, I really am thrilled that you're at our university. You're one of the reasons I was attracted to the university. <clears throat> Obviously, it's mission of social and economic justice, hugely important to me. I had to go to a university that had really quality education department because uh, yeah. education is one of those things I work right. on and I needed people around me that got the value of that. And so uh, it, it's really great to be at this place and someone with your track record and really our wonderful faculty. So uh, Roosevelt is, is 
a, just a great place for so, someone to study education and someone who cares about public policy to come and really learn about how these policy decisions made in the public sector really impact social and economic justice in our society. Yeah, well, it's great to have you here to, to elevate education and the issues that we face. And, and I'm definitely hoping we can find uh, more ways to collaborate in the near future. You betcha, it's gonna happen. And Justice for All is produced by Roosevelt University and is available at roosevelt.edu or anywhere you get your podcasts. The music for And Justice for All is written and produced by Jesse Case. Thanks for listening.